This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Not only do they have a, a pungent smell, right? They're all, they all repel bugs, and the way that they do it, they repel the bad. Regent Lewis's backyard isn't the average Oakland garden. He's a farmer and also spent eight years in jail for robbery. Now, he's part of the re-entry community. What's hard about being re-entering? Oh my goodness, uh, it's a lot, it's a lot. But Lewis gained access to a program called Pathways to Resilience. It helps with the transition process and also teaches the art of urban gardening. And it gives us a lens to look at the earth as a sustainable system structure. Off, man. You mother. All right. By the end of the program, Lewis earned a permaculture design certificate and gained lifelong friends. Where folks could kind of like come together, call each other, and, and build with each other and, and, and get best practices, right, for dealing with, um, you know, the situation that they're in, um, dealing with, you know, some of the stuff that comes along with being fresh out. But the Alameda County Reentry program that helped Lewis is completely out of funding, and other programs like it are in similar situations. To remedy the problem, County Supervisor Keith Carson crafted a motion in March to allocate millions to fund and expand reentry programs. You should always say that if you've broken the law, that you have to suffer, suffer, uh, suffer the consequences of breaking that law. But that's not the permanent place where you stay. Activists supporting the Jobs Not Jails campaign packed the supervisor's meeting on the day of the vote. I myself, like I've said many times before, I'm a formerly incarcerated individual um, who spent 17 years in the state prison system. Darius Young pushed for immediate action. And I know what it takes to get back into society, but unfortunately, there's not a lot of funding at certain levels or at certain places to help individuals get back on their feet. But the board was divided. Is there any objection to the motion? I'm going to object. Supervisor Scott Haggerty was opposed to the motion and wanted to delay the vote, but they voted anyway. Just me. Motion passes. Motion fails. For your board to take any I'm answering this question. For your board to take any action, you need a minimum of three votes. Motion passes three eyes, one excused, and one no vote. Supervisor Vallier excused, and Supervisor Haggerty voting no. But the cheers may have come too soon. The money won't be available for several months, and it's too early to tell which programs will be funded. Funded or not, Lewis's friends from Pathways to Resilience still keep up the social bonds. Um, tree cut trimming service, the arborist that I work with, he put his on there too, so he's getting a website as well. But, God, I don't know, Augie might start since he graduated, he might charge a big bank. Have you found a job? Um, I'm part time, yeah. Oh, that's good. I got me a job too. Oh. This is participant driven. Uh, the funding's gone, and everybody wants to meet. That we try to come together regularly 
after the, the cohort. And so, uh, yeah, as we was talking, we was just like, okay, well, the alumni, bam, let's get an alumni group together. So it's about building up social networks and community, right? And having places where you can go and just be able to just get everything you need to get off your chest. And then the other one is, uh, I deal with is uh, my uh, prison mentality, where I don't tolerate things. <laughs> I'm not putting up with that mess. But then I have to catch myself to say, wait a minute, man. Is it worth it? So I just go on. And that's my check in. For now, without funding, checking in is all the group can do. But in the meantime, Lewis keeps tending the slice of nature tucked away in his backyard. Statistics are showing that probably 50% of all the people with HIV in our area are over 50. Most of that over 50 population have gotten HIV through, through sexual means or through sharing of IV needles. clinical nurse up at Lifelong Medical in East Oakland, and my primary role is HIV care. Myself and a couple of other nurses on the particular floor I was on were identified by a couple of doctors as people that would be sympathetic and understanding to these patients, and we certainly were, and we didn't necessarily, we didn't want to wear space suits and all those stereotypes you heard about in the earlier days, and um, we offered compassionate care, and uh, that got me hooked. Hey, Dwayne, it's David. I'm doing fine. I heard you had a busy day yesterday. Well, how did it go for you there? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I identify with Dwayne a whole lot. We're the same age. I'm also HIV positive. And so we've talked a lot about some similar things, and we both grew up in the Bay Area. So we've kind of had this other balance in our lives. But Dwayne is uh, a person who is hard to keep down. In the earlier days, would have a phone and he'd lose it. You know, at least he say he'd lose it. You know, oftentimes not uncommon. It, it's a, a source of a few dollars too. He'd have a bus pass and get on the bus with it in his hand. He'd fall asleep on the bus because sleeping was never always a fluid night sleep in the same bed. And he'd drop his bus pass and not know it and get off the bus and realize he no longer has a bus pass. So finances and transportation were a problem. And so as a result, you know, finding him, tracking him down, getting promises. I'll be there. I'll come up to the clinic. Sure, no problem, I'll be there. <laughs> Never see him. 
And uh, but that didn't mean I'd stop trying. I wasn't too bad off until this guy that had managed in the place he evicted me for no reason. Actually, it was over five bucks. He said five dollars behind the rent, right? And he wouldn't take the rent because I was five dollars short. And it went up to twenty-five. And then it went up to fifty. Like that, well, that's you know? when they were scamming the, the he was, people. He was embezzling. They yeah. fired him for embezzling, but they still gave me an eviction. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it went there like uh, they said, well, turn your keys in five days ahead of time, and you won't get the eviction. So that's what I did, you know. But I still wound up with the eviction. I didn't even know I had it. somebody that I knew. And I have been using with him every day, just about every day. He used a syringe, right? And he gets through with it. I just rinse it out with water. And, you know, that's where you should be way, way, way back, you know? So I didn't know anything about HIV. He did, but he didn't tell me. Anyway, I go to Highland. Check me out. And they called me back to Highland about a week or so later and told me I had HIV. Grandmother was born in Oakland, mm-hmm. and her her grandmother was born in Lithuania. So they came Lithuanian Jews that came in the eighteen fifties. I found out in the early nineties. I had a partner at that time, and I believed what he told me with that he did not have the virus, and he probably didn't in the beginning of our relationship uh, because the work I did, I always tested myself every six months. And after four years of being with this gentleman, um, I came back positive, which confronting him, he got tested and he was positive. And I know I was monogamous, so I wasn't, you know, found out more about him after the fact. But yeah, it was not what I planned in life. And in the early days, you know, just like many people, I lost my dreams and my hopes. So yeah, it changed a lot of things. But I also look at what HIV has brought me. I mean, the I best know. thing I've found since I've had HIV here in Oakland is life on. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. <laughs> really? That's the best uh, I've found. I've been to Vermont. Uh, I've been to Highland, I've been to a lot of the programs that have HIV. But the only one that I've had that, that's there for me. We're very different people. We come from very different backgrounds and have a very different history. But uh, I respect him. Since I've been at Lifelong, I haven't lost any patient. And I'm not sure how I'm going to feel since this is a newer position, newer job, and my 30 years of HIV work. I don't know. And I have to admit, I'm worried Dwayne might be my first client. And I'm probably not ready for it at all. I've probably spent more time with him in the last four months than any other patient that uh, I'm trying to facilitate because I want him to live because I know he wants to live. I'm not gonna let go of him that easily.
up. These are uh, cardboard boxes, and they're very valuable to the for the urban camper or homeless person. And basically, what they do is they serve as an installation between you and the ground. They're still here, and this is basically my area. Looks like it's going to be rain, so we want to get the tent up. Since relocating from Los Angeles to San Francisco last year, Bilal Ali has been working at the Coalition on Homelessness, a nonprofit organization that works and advocates for the homeless. At the end of the workday, Ali heads straight for the streets. I sleep across the street there a lot of times. There's nobody there and it's private. Now last month, around 8, 8.30, the cop drove got on the speaker and said, come out the tent. I go, what's going on? He says, you got to shake the spot. You got to break the tent down and leave. Listen, I'm reading this opinion of this judge, right? After losing a former job several years ago, Ali has been homeless intermittently. Although college educated, hard times brought Ali to the streets. But on those streets, increased enforcement of local vagrancy laws has him constantly on the move. If you're laying down, the officers will come and they'll ask you to get up and move. If you refuse to move, then they will give you a citation. Yeah. For homeless folks in San Francisco, um, we have a highly criminalized city. Uh, we have a lot of laws. In San Francisco, it is illegal, with some exceptions, to sit or lie on a public sidewalk between 7 a.m. and 11 p.m. Jennifer Friedenbach, the coalition's executive director, says there are no outdoor public spaces where homeless people can rest legally. As a result... They get cited for sitting, lying, um, blocking the sidewalk, um, trespassing, um, you know, just a whole host of different things, camping. Um, what happens is they can't pay the tickets, the tickets go to warrant, the tickets also go to collections, their credit gets screwed up, um, their uh, criminal justice history gets messed up. So when they go to apply for housing, they no longer can get housing. California makes up 12% of the U.S. population, but has 22% of the nation's homeless. A recent report from UC Berkeley Law School found that cities across the state are also criminalizing homeless-related activities. These laws are being used to put this population, poor homeless people, outside of the public eye. And really, it is a similar uh, it is a similar thing that we're doing that we did to people with these anti-Oki laws, these Jim Crow laws. It's just a different group that's being discriminated against at this time. The report's findings suggest that police do enforce vagrancy laws selectively. Really, people who, do not, who are not poor, who do not appear to be homeless, are not being cited under these laws for loitering, for uh, sleeping in these cars. They... they Essentially, these laws are only being enforced against people because they happen to not have housing. I wonder sometimes if I'm getting too comfortable with this kind of lifestyle. So I have to remind myself, like, you got to get some housing, dude. The housing crisis in San Francisco now affects people of some means, but the city's solutions don't include the homeless. We have housing coming in over the next couple years. Hundreds of units of housing, of affordable housing, not one unit, not one unit for homeless households. With scant housing options for the homeless and increased criminalization, advocates in California are pushing the Right to Rest Act, a statewide proposal that would overturn local enforcement and conviction of vagrancy laws. And so we're really calling for a halt to um, those 
um, types of use of citations and arresting and um, jailing of people so that um, we can then redirect the wasted resources that are used on criminalization towards actually housing and creating solutions. The state Senate will vote on the Right to Rest Act next year. In the meantime, homeless Californians are left to rest wherever they can for as long as they can. And in Ali's case, with a few luxuries. I have a mobile hotspot, so I get in, get an uh, internet connection. I can listen to music or I can watch a movie. You know, I have a light if I want to read. So I have some comforts. Home sweet home. Home sweet home. We had two rhinos, um, I believe, to have been shot with a, with a firearm. And one of those rhinos had its horns cut off, the other did not. They died possibly 100 or 150 meters apart from each other. What is of most concern is that the shots were not heard. Bobby is an orphan rhino. His mother was killed for her horn. Jamie Gamer manages this rhino sanctuary and protects the surrounding 60,000 acres of land from a major threat, poachers. Oljogi is an American-owned wildlife conservancy. It is home to 46 eastern black rhinos, of which there are 500 left in the world. The enemy who are trying to come and poach our rhinos um, are becoming more advanced, investing in higher tech equipment, um, automatic weapons. Um, perhaps their own intelligence is, is um, quite well established um, and they continue to invest in those things. And we are having to evolve our security in order to combat that. If not heavily guarded, orphan rhinos would be immediately killed. Black market buyers from Asia and the United States have driven the price of ivory to $2,000 per kilogram and rhino horn to $65,000 per kilogram, making it more expensive than gold. The threat has escalated significantly. Um, it is very organized crime, we understand. Um, and there's huge money behind it, um, being that the commodity is worth so much. I don't know the definition of war, but um, certainly there is a very advanced enemy who are putting us under considerable threat. To protect the rest of the wildlife at Oljogi, Jamie manages a fleet of aircraft, attack dogs, and more than 100 armed men. To fight a uh, poaching is like uh, you are in war, because you have to, first of all, you have to have uh, good weapons. This one is a G3 rifle, which is normally being used by Kenya police and uh, even the Kenyan, uh, Kenya armies. It's automatic. It's automatic. And uh, the caliber itself, uh, the caliber itself, the caliber itself uh, is 
by rules over Kenya is that okay, you don't have to shoot to kill, but you have to arrest. But at the night, at the night, you know, it's difficult because what are you doing at the park at the night and you are armed? That definitely is a poacher. So you did him you just you shoot, yeah. As rangers head out for their nightly patrol, they're never sure how quiet their 12-hour shift will be. Go ahead. I have to do the back on any. The toilet to check your area. Um, but unfortunately, it has got to the level now where, like I said, human lives are being lost. Tragically, a Kenyan Wildlife Service officer was um, shot dead last year um, on the boundary of Oljogi by an, en an unknown enemy who essentially ambushed our men and engaged them in a firefight. But poachers have also lost their lives. Lakini has seen it firsthand. Lakini is now a ranger at a neighboring wildlife conservancy, pointing the barrel of his gun at the people he was once involved with. The human toll of poaching is high on both sides. Recently, Jamie's rangers had a firefight with a suspected poacher. Accurate records of the incident were not kept. Jamie is trying to keep track of what happened. With more than 100 men patrolling 60,000 acres, accountability is a necessity. But trust is maybe more important. Poachers can make more money than rangers, adding another challenge for managers like Jamie. There is that issue that... Uh, uh, the the, uh, the the ranger they are being paying pina that's why they have been some of them they have been turning to be a poachers if you are you are not trustful it's easy for you even even me as a ranger it's easy for me to to be dragged in the, in the in that syndicate we have tried to combat that um, by improving staff motivation we even tried to tackle it from an economic perspective where we um, introduced a zero rhino poaching bonus um, incentive for um, all security in equal measure across the property, hoping that they would um, add a self-policing mechanism um, and look for the one or two individuals within this conservancy who might be selling information back to the poachers.
But traffickers corrupting rangers on the ground is just the foundation for a much more powerful operation. Andrea Crosta is a wildlife investigator who concluded that the profits from ivory trafficking were funding an organization that continues to tally its body count. We met uh, very serious traffickers. They told us that slowly, slowly we built uh, the story, we built this puzzle, and uh, we assess that back then Al-Shabaab was able to um, smuggle, buy and sell about between one and three tons of ivory every month from Kenya. Then actually the traffickers describe us how they organized the pickup in this nomad land. The Al-Shabaab or Al-Shabaab emissaries were coming over with the technical, you know, the pickups with their old scale, paying cash, always punctual, to the point that some of the traffickers told us that Al-Shabaab back then was a preferred customer because no tricks, no games, paying cash, you know, and then disappear. So we, we plan really in advance we, uh, we film a lot of those meetings uh, with undercover cameras. As soon as Krasta announced that Al-Shabaab pays approximately 40% of its wages with money made from illegal ivory sales, President Obama signed an executive order to divert resources to fight the problem. They thought that uh, the best way to deal with this problem is to put more boots on the ground, to, put, to send a lot of weapons, to, send, uh, to train uh, rangers. It's all important stuff, but it's not the solution. Criminal organizations can easily pay off port officials at crucial exit points, such as the port of Mombasa in Kenya, where only 1% of the shipping containers are scanned. Corruption is really the problem. And you can put all the boots on the ground you want, uh, but if you don't address this specific cause, this specific thing, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's really almost wasted money. It's morning at Old Jogi, and Jamie is responding to gunshots that were reported overnight. He has to count rhinos to make sure none were poached. I don't, I don't think the problem is going to get any better anytime in the near future. The price of the commodity continues to increase, therefore the incentive to poachers continues to increase. Jamie eventually counted all the rhino, but the threat of poachers still remains. The first layer on the ground are the ones who have to face the, the bullets, unfortunately. Um, I like living here in Treasure Island. I guess it's good, but sometimes they could have it's good and it's bad. Like for transportation, sometimes we, my parents get out of work very late and we only come here to sleep. It takes Alessandro half an hour to drive to school now. He used to make that trip in eight minutes from his home in San Francisco's Mission District. That all changed on January 28th. That night, a fire broke out in his family's apartment house at 22nd and Mission. The fire killed one and displaced 50 more, along with 36 small businesses. The day of the fire, I was actually in my room, so I 
called 911 and they told me that I immediately needed to get out because there was a fire. At first I didn't know what to do, but then I went to the fire escape and the, the ladders were actually kind of locked. So then citizens downstairs, they told me to throw my dog. So I threw him and then the cops actually came and they told me to throw myself down. And yeah, that's where I jumped. Gonzalez and his family joined a list of over 200 Mission District residents who have lost their homes to fires in the past three years. The mission has become known as ground zero in the gentrification of San Francisco's neighborhoods. Local agencies say more than 8,000 Latino residents have left the mission because rents are so high. Many of them have left the city altogether. The fire department has ruled out arson in many cases, but some activists are still suggesting a connection between the fires and the transformation of the neighborhood. These satirical flyers circulating in the mission are advertising PyroFlipper, an app offering landlords a way to push out their tenants. Supervisor David Campos is listening. It's understandable why people uh, have been raising the issue of arson uh, in the sense that there, there is a history uh, going back to the 70s uh, at a time when the community was changing. A lot of people knew were coming in uh, where fires did take place. In the two years after BART made the neighborhood more desirable, there were 132 fires in the mission. Inspectors concluded that 11 were arson. The most memorable was the 1975 Garland Hotel fire at 16th and Valencia. It was one of the worst days for San Francisco because uh, we even later found out that a suspect had walked up the stairs of the hotel and uh, poured gasoline from the top landing all the way down to the entrance and then lit it. That night, firefighter Carr was listening on a scanner as the fire department responded. There was limited uh, fire escapes, if any, and the people trapped in the building went to the windows. But the experienced firefighters, you could hear it in their voices, they knew they couldn't rescue all those people. So they basically picked and choose. So uh, I believe the assistant chief was so devastated by that fire that he retired the next day. Carr later became the captain of the arson unit. Throughout my career, I know uh, developers and facilitators have purchased buildings and were unable to make them into what they wanted through the uh, permit process. So there was a fire weeks later. The fire department's current arson captain, John Darmanin, isn't convinced. Structure fires that have occurred in the Mission District, uh, with a few exceptions, uh, have been accidental in nature. So I don't see any uh, reason to be concerned that there is a spike in any arson-related structure fires in the Mission District. But Darmanin has heard the rumors. And I know there was some, uh, some suspicion that uh, the 22nd Street fire was arson-related in order to demolish the building and put up a condo. We try not to listen to rumors. We let the evidence speak for itself. The idea of arson in the mission may be intriguing, but tenants lawyer Joseph Tobiner says for landlords, simply neglecting their building may be more advantageous. So if the fire started because of the landlord's negligence or because of a tenant's negligence, the landlord's insurance carrier is going to pick that up. But if it's an intentional fire caused by the landlord, 
the landlord's insurance company will likely not pay to rebuild the structure. The arson unit did in fact conclude that faulty wiring caused the fire at 22nd and Mission. Había muchas, muchas, este, pues, irregularidades, verdad, que las alarmas cuando no había nada encendían a cada momento eh, y hoy que fue el accidente el incendio no se activaron para nada a uh, las escaleras de emergencia igual As for returning home, Alessandro's family was told that it might take up to two years. After three notices of violation, the owner finally filed for permits to fix the building, but it's still a waiting game. Oftentimes we see the landlords try and skirt that by waiting a long time to repair a building and then either never offering the unit back or offering the unit back so far into the future that the tenant really has no ability to return by then they've they've moved on. For now, Alessandra is stuck with that 30-minute commute to school. I would really like to live in San Francisco again. Throughout the day, there's a conversation that's kind of one-sided because I really don't know what he's talking about. He tells me about a whole bunch of stuff, you know, and uh, I listen. However, at night, I prepare his meal and I give him his meal. Every time I open that door and give him his meal, there's this smile, there's this recognition. Hey! What's up, man? Doing all right? Got some grub for you. That connection is huge. When that morning, a guy, yeah, the same guy, puts his shoes on backwards. At this state prison in California, a group of unlikely caregivers called Gold Coats is assisting inmates with dementia. In place since 2009, the program now has a dozen gold coats looking after more than 70 of their fellow inmates. Becoming a gold coat requires training in weekly meetings with a prison psychologist. I'm in here for a murder. Yes, I committed a murder in 1998. I was 19 years old. In recent years, judges have doled out longer sentences, and that's created overcrowded prisons and aging prison populations. Inmates with dementia pose particular problems. To protect their privacy, their images have been concealed. Maybe just when you're having one of your nighttime walks with, with him to just stop and say, you know, sometimes, you know, you play a little bit and some people feel like it gets a little too far. They start to get upset. And if we say to you, you know, you kind of shut it down or stop, then you need to just trust us that you need to stop. Is that something he could hear from you guys? Or no? It is. But if you do that, it'll backfire because then, you know, he's real sensitive. Then he's, he's going to go, he's going to take it personal, and he's going to go into a shell. Okay. Now you have Willie, you know, yeah. emotionally upset, yeah. and now you have Charles in the shell to where, you know, yeah. oh, the Gold Coast don't like me no more. Because he will ask you that. Yeah. I walk through the process. Yeah, yeah. 
I ran from this job at first. I had another job, and this job, I looked at the guys and I looked at the work they were doing, and I didn't want any parts of it. The morning start off at 6.30. I go down, it's about six guys that we get up every morning. And uh, we prompt them, make sure they, you know, brush their teeth, wash their face. Wash out first, and I get you some shampoo. Let, let that sit, uh, medicine sit in your head for a while, all right? You know, that means every time they go down and shower, whatever they have on, they just throw it in the laundry, and we replace it. You know, we make sure they get soap, shampoo, make sure they have toothpaste. Uh, a few of the guys have medicated shampoo. You know, we make sure they put that on their head. You know, like the one guy, I got in the shower and I soaked the towel up for him, you know, gave him the towel. And I just took him to the steps, you know, wash behind your ears and stuff like that, you know. It's going to be times like this to where, you know, these guys with dementia just going to forget. You know, they're not going to know what's going on. They're going to be disorientated, you know, they're just going to be confused. And, you know, as they caregiver, it's going to be up to me to to hold it together, you know, to get them through this process. Five, three, Jason, Jones, Fort. All inmates down, all inmates down. Got a co-in disturbance on building six. It was overwhelming, you know, when I first started, you know, because I wasn't expecting this, you know. But as time went on, you know, it became, as I started understanding more, you know, what dementia was. What's up, man? You wanna go get ice cream? Come on, Leonard. Grab your seat, man. Yeah. Come this way. Go here. Come on, Willie. As soon as the canteen open, I run over there and grab some ice cream. Right? They were still closed right now. Give me two vanilla and three Pepsis. You have to have tough skin because you're going to have people that don't appreciate what we do. They don't like what we do because we stop them from doing what they want to do, and that's victimize the guys that can't, you know, care for themselves. I work with the crew that goes to the gym, which is called health education. So we go over to the gym, and some days we may start the day off with stretching. We're going to go one, two, three, and then we're going to break those chains. The chains of the prison chains that we got ourselves into, we can get ourselves out. All right, ready? Chain breakers, 20 of them, and begin. Let's go. One, two, three. One, one two, three. Two, one, two, three. One, two, three. Four, one, two, three. One, two, three. You know, the roughest part of being incarcerated 
is coming to terms why you in here. I murdered a person in 1993. His name was Donald Morris. And that was the first time that I admitted, actually, you know, because I was always in denial because I felt I could get away with it. You know, I think about him every day. You know, I talk to him every morning. I talk to him every night. You know, I express to him how bad I feel, you know. And I just try to... Uh, I just try to do what I can to make sure that the person that murdered Donald never resurface again. You know, I'm not that person. You know, I am the physical person that pulled that trigger, but I no longer think like that person. Through these programs, it's enabled me to think of others, you know, in, in a situation where. I was sentenced to 35 years to life, and for 14 of those years, I thought about myself and how I can get out of prison. Um, I came to this prison and got involved in these programs, and this helped me think of others and helping others. And in turn, it also helped me think of my victim and my victim's family and, and, and all the victims in my crime, you know, because there's countless victims, you know, in, in a crime of that magnitude. When I first started, when I came over here, I seen a group of guys that had uh, disabilities. You know, now I see a group of guys that I care for. You know, that's the difference now. I don't see their disabilities. I don't see their auto scars. I don't see uh, the things that make them disabled. I just see guys that I care for every day. Oh, she always she always made an entrance. You know, Taja Taja was dramatic. She had a flair, and I think she she was kind of on stage. Excuse my language when I say this, but that was one bad bitch. Twenty thirty years ago, when I was much younger, before I had children, I looked at just that good. Taja is somebody you would like to be around. Because the aura that Taj had, you want that. Taja de Jesus was 36 when she was stabbed to death in her apartment. We're parents, you know. Our our kids aren't supposed to die before us, you know. Taja was born into a traditional Christian family in the suburbs of San Jose. For Halloween, you know, we'd say, what do you want to be for Halloween? And she'd say, I want to be Wonder Woman. You know, and we'd say, Wonder Woman? What about Batman? No. Well, what about Spider-Man? No, I want to be Wonder Woman. And for the first 20 years of her life, Taja battled the expectation to grow up a man, not a woman. When I grow up, am I going to be a girl? And I said, oh, no. I said, you're, you're a boy, you know. And she said, why? Why, why am I not going to be a girl? And, you know, I didn't know, you know, a transgender. I didn't. I grew up in a really um, conventional a Christian background household where that kind of thing wasn't even discussed. I didn't understand my own self, like that I was trans, and seeing her walk around and being herself um, was inspiring. In her 20s, Taja moved to San Francisco for better access to health care and counseling. She ended up in the Bayview neighborhood, where she did a writing class in Bible studies with the Salvation Army's Jen Ahrens. In some respects, she was really cared for in this community and taken care of, and not everyone knew her name. Uh, 
but they always referred to her, you know, that woman on the bike, that because she rode her bike everywhere. She was, you know, this this ball of energy. And she was all over this place, man. She, I'm telling, you, she was all over Bayview, the grocery stores, riding the bow circle or on the train. She was an active person, energy. This is Roscoe, one of many volunteers who Taja joined every Monday at a Bayview food bank. When I first met her, somebody said he, and she's like, nope, get it right. I'm a, I'm a she. I said, oh, okay. The food bank was a safe haven for Tasha through her battles with drug addiction and mental health problems. Tasha was very complicated, I think. Like, this is who I am, and what are you going to do about it? And then would turn around, I think, and be very vulnerable. So... Um, she was a, a, an intra, a complex person, uh, I think, with, with several pieces that she was always trying to kind of put together. I was actually kind of amazed that someone experiencing what Taja experiences in her life and the way she lived her life would choose to live in this community because I would immediately see the risks. The last time I ran into her was um, she was telling me how... Um, challenging it was for her to live in the Bayview and that it's not safe but she was grateful to have a place. In the last week of January, Taja was to visit her mother Linda and her father Eduardo back in San Jose for Super Bowl Sunday. They planned to have a barbecue together. She texted me and she said, Mom, you don't have to worry about me. You know, I'm safe. I'm not scared to live in the city. I'm strong and I'm safe. But thank you. She said, Thank you for loving me, Mom. And I said, oh, thank you for loving me, too. And then um, she texts again on Saturday, you know. I'll see, you, I'll see you and Pops on Sunday. And we've been waiting ever since. We never, she never made it. Neighbors found Taja in the stairwell of her apartment building, partially clothed and stabbed all over her body. And she ran down the steps and was hollering. For the police, somebody called the police, please, the ambulance. She was been laying right, she was laying right here, right here, because upstairs is the living room just like this. And she, I guess she made it this far, and that's where she expired. I even hate to go out this house sometimes, but she had got, it was a mess up there, though. They said it looked like a, a murder scene, blood everywhere. So I don't really know, because when I came home, that's when they told me, and I just, I couldn't do nothing but sit down and cry, no matter what. She still was, she didn't have to be, you know, going that way, you know what I'm saying? My son sent me a message with the article that said someone was stabbed to death in the Bayview. Before I read it, the tears started streaming down my face because I knew it was her. Well, someone came in. It was one of the first people to come in and say, hey, your friend got killed. Um, and in this community, that phrase, your friend got killed, um, is a fairly common one. You know, she, she had to crawl from her room where she was stabbed, crawl down the hallway, out her door to the stairwell to try to get help. And it breaks my heart. Not only was she murdered, but she died all alone like that. The next day, I woke up, and 
I posted on Facebook immediately. I'll be at City Hall tomorrow at this time, and I'm going to do a die-in. Who wants to join me? I got hundreds of messages. Taja Gabriel de Jesus was stabbed to death in the Bayview in San Francisco. The community response was just incredible. It was like a tidal wave of passion to stop the violence toward us. We are not a popularity contest. Yes. We are not a freak show. Please. We are not a television experience or a reality moment. Yes. We are real! When we did the die-in, it was just sobering to see so many trans women of color dead in front of me. The protesters lied on the ground for three minutes and 50 seconds, echoing the average life expectancy of a trans woman of color, 35. Such a powerful event and um, such a tragic loss. And her life was not lived in vain. Confidential police sources revealed they traced the blood trail from Taj's apartment a few blocks to an industrial yard. 49-year-old James Hayes was found there. He had hung himself from a metal spike. Both how long Taj and Hayes had been seeing each other and how much he accepted Taj's identity remain unclear. Looking back at our conversations, I realized that I missed some key indicators that there, was, there might have been violence, there might have been some unhealthy, severely unhealthy situations in the relationships that she was in. She went, one of the signs that I missed was she went from talking about boyfriends and whomever she was dating to not really mentioning it. You know, she, so it was just sudden, uh, in my mind at the time, just thought she just wasn't dating anyone, which in perspective, she was always dating someone. So <clears throat> it doesn't make sense that she wasn't dating anyone. Taja kept the details of her relationship with Hayes a secret to most people around her. And we may never know what drove Hayes to stab Taja to death. The person or the perpetrator that killed her, I think he may have been worried about people knowing or that learning that he was involved with a transgender woman. A few months on, the details of that Sunday morning in February still have many more questions than answers. There is little record of Hayes, who was unknown to the neighborhood and had no known residence. But to Taja, Hayes was another partner that failed to accept her. Taja wanted to be loved, not just by her family, but she wanted to be in a relationship. She had a really hard time finding a relationship. Many of us do, but I know that she did want to be with someone and have intimacy with someone that she loved. And I'm not sure that that ever really happened for her. Hi, I'm Tom, and I'm a normal person, which means I'm dysfunctionally attached to the internet and my phone. I find it hard to just be. I can't just sit and think. I have to fill every spare moment mindlessly using my phone. Two days ago, 
I spent 80 minutes on my phone, over an hour on my phone on that single day, and I picked it up 188 times. I don't think those are healthy numbers. They say the average attention span of an American has dropped from 12 minutes to 5 minutes in the last 10 years. Mine feels even shorter. I have to wonder, am I becoming an addict? And so we're here in San Jose, California, to meet Dr. Elaine Brady, a woman who runs a clinic uh, which specialises in the treatment of uh, internet addiction. And we're going to find out if I need her service and if I am an addict. So, one, how often do you find that you stay online longer than you had intended? A lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah, most days. So, loss of time is one of the uh, determining characteristics of uh, falling into the zone, the, the dark zone. The dark zone? Is that what is the dark zone? It is uh, uh, clinically called dissociation. Uh, a psychological phenomena in which a person just becomes disconnected from um, awareness mm. of their environment. Well, I hope I'm not in the dark zone yet, but we'll see. <laughs> right. How often do you uh, neglect household chores? In your case, we might even say academic chores to spend more time online. I would say a lot again. Wow. Yeah, many okay. times. This isn't going well, I don't think. <laughs> Elaine was just laughing at me. Desperate times call for desperate measures. I decided to go for one whole day with no phone, no screens, no internet. It may sound easy, but I probably haven't done a whole day like this for months, maybe even years. Just going to go and find something to do today. Not sure what... My mind has started to wander because I'm not used to concentrating on anything for more than five or ten minutes. Um, normally at this point I check my phone, make sure nothing revolutionary has happened on Instagram in the time that I've been reading. But right now I'm just going to carry on reading. I also talked to a psychology professor. People try to rely on willpower, and that only takes them so far. You know, their own will to say, okay, I'm going to shut it off now, or I won't use it this yeah. afternoon, or something like that. That might help now and then, but it doesn't quite butter the biscuit, as they say. I asked myself, am I socially dysfunctional because I feel I have to refresh Instagram five times a day? The one thing I try to impress upon people is that behavioural addictions are, in fact, drug addictions. So it's a similar stimulation of the brain. You keep having to have it? Absolutely. There are some very hardwired responses sure. that we have as human beings that the internet taps into. Right. And it triggers the release of chemicals that are the most powerful in the human body. Hmm. Uh, many of those associated with procreation. Right. Being sexual. So opioids and amphetamines. Was Elaine really saying I was replacing human intimacy with intimacy with a screen? 
Hey guys, are you from Berkeley? Sure. <laughs> a rose garden? Yeah, there's supposed to be a rose garden somewhere around. Um, I don't know if you have a smartphone. You can, I don't. Yeah, you I can don't. Google it. Good, thanks. Yeah. Really nice. How many do you really need, you know? I was getting bored. Walking around a city, I found nothing that excited me. Online, there's a limitless supply of videos, articles or messaging to be done. It felt bizarre to be limited to the inadequacy of actual people in physical places. What we want to do is what we call social engineering approaches, which would be creating an environment where it's just not convenient f to use it. So, for example, sometimes people are in environments where there's no um, internet connection uh, or there's no um, uh, cell tower or whatever. Go live in the desert. Go live in the desert or uh, go hike in the high Sierras. I've never explored the Berkeley Hills. I just I guess I've always been just too occupied with the internet. going to try and come at one with nature. It says, for shuttle info, 510-64-whatever, so that's not an option, so I don't know if it is running. this feeling of waiting for something to arrive and just being without thinking or without thinking without having the entertainment or stimulation of a variety of apps and games you could just hope an uber rolls past everyone's looking at me like what are you doing this is so embarrassing Taking selfies. No selfies for me. Well, without being too dramatic, I have had much more prominent mood swings today of like my, my natural moods. I had a period of sadness throughout the afternoon and then like some happiness, which would normally I would normally have um, tried to like cure and stop if I felt like a little bit sad or bored for a while with phone and internet use, so I feel like I've like, experienced human emotions a bit more just in one day. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.